Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians will be in chapter 2 this morning. We'll read in a few moments from verses 20 through 23. Uh, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you're visiting with us or if you forgot your Bible this morning, go ahead and open that. There's an index at the front. The book of Colossians is where we'll be, chapter 2. Well, how thankful I am for you all. This is our family's first Thanksgiving here in Greenville. Just a year ago, we were getting to know you. And praise God for the friendship and the partnership that he has given to us. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Thanksgivings are not always thankful. There are often uh, some predictable contradictions that come with the season. It's often the time when we are least thankful for our families. Too much time in the same small space. We were so eager to be together and now we're so eager to be apart. There's another contradiction summed up nicely in an article published this week by the Babylon Bee. And just to warn you, this is a satire piece. Unable to faint contentment and thankfulness for one more second, citizens across the nation awoke Friday and immediately set out on a frenzied mission to violently pillage and strip bare all nearby retail locations. Pillagers beat each other with various weapons and instruments, wrestled on the floor like animals, and have exchanged gunfire in some locations, taking hold of all the material goods that they desired. Sources confirmed that the unfettered violence occurred less than 24 hours after these same people sat around tables with family and friends over large meals and gave thanks for the many blessings in their lives. 20 hours of great, 12 hours of gratefulness annually is way too much for the majority of humankind to stomach. Experts revealed amidst the day's chaos, what we see on Black Friday is just human nature's standard guttural reaction to the annual tradition of acting like the world does not revolve around them for one whole day. So Thanksgiving brings with it some contradictions, and they all have their own explanations. Maybe you've thought, I'm not a very thankful Christian. I'm a dutiful Christian, and I know how much that I have been given in Jesus and all that he is for me, but I'm just not that thankful for him in my heart when I'm honest. Well, Paul has been poring over this young church at Colossae. He's been praying over them with great thanksgiving for them to God, and he's been filling them with a vision of all that God is for them in Jesus in order that they would overflow in thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving has been a theme in our book. But there's a threat to their thanksgiving, to their joy in God, to their maturity, of which thanksgiving is an indication, to their spiritual fullness in Jesus. It's a sinister threat. It seeks to empty them out to make a relationship with the living God of lavish fatherly generosity a chilling, chilly affair to portray him as stingy. And it's sneaky. It looks like a path to maturity. It even posts road signs that say, go this way and the safest way and the high road. And this is what God deserves But it subtly pits God's holiness against his generosity, his transcendence against his nearness, and his worth against his great welcome of sinners and the gift of all that he has made for us to enjoy. There's a sinister and sneaky threat to the kind of thankful hearts that mark true and vibrant Christianity. What is that threat? Hear God's word now from Colossians 2, 20 through 23, Paul protecting his flock. He writes, if with Christ you died, 
to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that there tips off another Thanksgiving contradiction. We are a nation at the moment celebrating Thanksgiving, and yet there is reason for great grief in our moment. Weinstein, more. The list goes on in the last week of manifestations of the indulgence of the flesh, a problem of which every human takes a part. There's a kind of a quickening of the conscience at the moment in our nation, and that's not a bad thing. But even over Thanksgiving, there's a reason to grieve. Well, the indulgence of flesh is a real problem, and that is, that is the impetus, that is the aim after which this sinister threat to Christian Thanksgiving and maturity takes its aim. For four weeks now, we've been walking our way through verses 16 through 23 of this chapter and meditating together on what we're calling add-on Christianity. In verses 16 through 17, we had what we're calling so-called judges holding over the church. Very selective verses in the Old Testament for obedience, being more biblical than the Bible, requiring obedience of things that were fulfilled. Verses 18 through 19 described self-appointed umpires calling outs for not participating in these elevated spiritual experiences that we saw, being more spiritual than true spirit-filled Christianity. And now in verses 20 through 23, self-appointed regulations officers doing quality control on the church with their extra careful standards for holiness, making sure the church is extra pure because God deserves it, right? And so my aim for you and for us this morning as this local outpost of the new creation is that we would see God as abundantly and lavishly and beautifully and surprisingly generous so that we would trust the commands that he has given us and we would not think that we must be extra pure in order to be pure enough for him. That we would purify ourselves this morning of attempts at purity that God has not required. That we would enjoy his lavish gifts all the way and trust the commands that he has offered us. Well, in the spirit of thanksgiving, how shall we carve up this passage? And actually, that's not a bad way of describing what an outline should do. It helps us make our way through a text. And it helps a text make its way through us. So we'll use three questions this morning. What are these regulations? Why are they so appealing? And how can they be wrong? What are these regulations? Why are they so appealing? And how can they be wrong? First question, what are these regulations. What are these regulations? Well, he tells us, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
Pretty straightforward, right? It's probably not exactly how they were saying it. This is Paul's summary. It is even a caricaturing tone to it. Parody-like sound to it, a bit condescending. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. At the moment, we're just trying to get our minds around what is being regulated. Do not taste, handle, or touch. Well, here's some obvious observations. First, these are extra-biblical regulations. Notice Paul using quotes. At least that's how it's interpreted here. He's quoting people. He's not quoting Scripture. Second, these regulations are external. They seek to regulate things a person touches, tastes, or handles. Third, they're specific, getting down to objects such as food. Third, they're diverse. They cover a range of Christian behavior, assuming this is not meant to be a limiting statement. We could as well add, do not wear, do not go, do not see, and so forth. It's a triad. It's meant to be comprehensive. Three things to represent a total spectrum. Fourth, they're prohibitive. They focus on things you should not do. And the problem he focuses on would not have to be the only, only include prohibitions, but it's the nature of the problem that they are usually heavy on prohibitions. So they're prohibitive. And fifth, they're black and white. Do not, do not, do not. Bright lines, strong statements. Sixth, they're required. The imagery of a self-appointed judges and self-appointed umpires that we've explored apply here, apply here still. Remember, we're dealing with an overall atmosphere in Colossae, not one monolithic false teaching that's presented, but likely several things that are in the air that are not unlike the kinds of things that are in the air wherever human pride manifests itself in a church or in the world surrounding. And so we've got an atmosphere of judgmentalism, which we said is the exhaust of legalism, which is fueled by human pride, which is everywhere you find a human being. They're required. And seventh, these regulations are universal. Note the second person, do not. They're being offered for others to keep. They're being required. Now, we're not talking about community standards presented as community standards. If you go to camp and have to wear a certain kind of bathing suit, it's not legalism. It's a community standard. If you're led to believe that a certain bathing suit is more holy than another because of a certain measurement that it has in particular, well, that might be getting close to legalism if it isn't already there. These are not family rules, a dad not letting his daughter date until a certain age. I got one of those. Communicated it before the thing could hardly talk. Um, so it's done. And I might change the rule. I don't know. But family rules are part of a dad's job and the wise application of Scripture as he seeks to raise his children. A mom and a dad raise their children. They're not culturally appropriate expressions of gender. I'm trying to rule a few things out here. Paul spoke of head coverings elsewhere, and there are ways within any culture to express distinction between men and women. And that's often a dynamic question. Those are the kinds of things that everyone in a given culture would generally recognize, and sometimes you have overlapping cultures in one place. That's a dynamic question. 
These are not mere matters of self-restraint or self-discipline. Indeed, Paul used farming and military and athletic imagery to describe his own faith as it's expressed. And it's not personal strategies for avoiding sin. A person who decides they'll not partake in alcohol or not have internet on their phone or not go out to dinner at a pub with their sales team after a win. This is not looking down on all forms of self-restraint that may not be required by Scripture, but would in some cases, and for some people, be, be prudent. They are not legalists. And these are not popular and prudent safeguards, things like the Billy Graham rule or what's being called now the Pence rule. Uh, I personally don't share a meal alone with a woman or ride in a car alone with a woman. And that's just smart. And that's okay. And that's not legalism. Legalism would be, this kind of add-on Christianity would be, when any of these things are universalized as a matter of black and white, right or wrong, in or out. Right with God or not. And just to rehearse where we've been, to sharpen this again for us, legalism as we've defined it could have come, out, come, out, come in three different ways. First, it may require, it may add requirements for God's acceptance and salvation, which he does not require. This is what so many false religions do, and it's what we can creep into. Or more popular, it may add requirements for God's pleasure in our lives or an ongoing fellowship with him that he doesn't require. One's requiring it on another in the place of God. How presumptuous, taking his name in vain and doing that. Or third, it may add strength to a matter of lesser biblical clarity or theological consequence, thereby calling one thing more important than God did relative to another. And here's what this might sound like. This is from a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous and faithful preacher from the early 20th century in a comment I imagine he later regretted. He said, this is for a little perspective, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks, rings, wristwatches, spats, shoes instead of boots, or who carries a cane in his hand. The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but it is a real curse to humanity. If I had to spend a, it keeps going, folks. If I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day or who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter because a man's soul is more important than his skin. When I enter a house and find that they have a wireless apparatus, i.e. a radio, I know at once that there is something wrong to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. A little perspective, yeah. That's golden. Uh, that's a little embarrassing, too. We talk like that, don't we? It's so easy to do, to associate so closely. Maybe a shift in our own culture or something that's really normal to us, but, but different for somebody else. And to wed that with the gospel and to speak strongly, strongly in these kinds of of terms. Probably a terribly, a terribly smelly congregation after that one. <laughs> well, often these kinds of rules seem reasonable in the moment, right? Lots of other people around us agree. We've thought this for a very long time. Perhaps we've received this or that opinion or, or regulation from our parents. They're hardwired into our 
our spiritual operating system so that we can't separate it from, from the main things that we believe. We can't imagine Christianity a different way. Mission trips are helpful for this. Perhaps it's our, our hand at being wise in the world in which we find ourselves at the moment, but a generation later, they've gone from my best shot at being faithful in the cultural moment to God's best for all Christians at all time, or more subtly, as personal standards, but for you too. Now, Paul is very condescending toward these kinds of regulations. Don't miss it. Don't miss how provoked he is. Don't miss how much it irks him. And don't miss the sarcasm in his voice as he speaks about them. He's doing this, as we've mentioned over these weeks, in order to protect his hearers who are vulnerable to falling prey to it. Maybe at the risk of offending some, he is making sure that his readers don't feel like that's the cool or best way to go. That they know that to be good with him, they've got to stay with Christ and not slip into these regulations and they do pit themselves against each other. But before we explore why these regulations are a problem, let's explore a little while. Let's meditate on why they're, why they're so appealing to us. Where they get their appeal. So second, why are they so appealing? No doubt those saying, do not, do not, and do not have their reasons and their stories and their anecdotes there are explanations that all sound reasonable. Paul even speaks of plausible arguments that lead us astray earlier. Look at me in verse 23. Why are they so appealing? Well, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Let's meditate on this together. First, these, these kinds of regulations are appealing because they, they look and sound smart. They do. They have an appearance of wisdom. They do appear wise. And maybe there is some wisdom in this or that regulation, but we often make a matter of perceived wisdom into a matter of universal right and wrong, and that's where it goes wrong. So they're appealing because they, they look smart. They're also appealing because they, they're religious, Self-made is Paul's addition. They weren't likely promoting their own self-made religion. He's calling it self-made religion. It was promoted and presented, and it felt like true God-honoring religion. But the motivation is religious in nature, but it's misguided. It has a certain respect for God, usually with an accent on his holiness, but a surprising vacancy on his generosity. And they're appealing because they, they look humble, these regulations do. They look humble. Asceticism, we explored this last week, could be translated delighting in humility. There's a kind of pride in looking like you're working hard to be godly. And there's a bit of a show. It refers to practices that look and feel humbly. And maybe it's denying oneself a, a certain pleasure or, or food or whatever other people are doing. We think of the, the Pharisee. Read this story here in Luke 18. He also told this parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with 
contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other who prayed. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see in that parable, Jesus is fighting the very thing that Paul is fighting in Colossians. And for which we need to be alert in ourselves and around us. That Pharisee prayed about how he fasted twice a week. He was only required by law to fast once a year. He prayed and boasted about how he tithed everything which was not required, only only some. And he looked down on the tax collector who himself looked up to God and said, be merciful to me. A sinner. So the the apparently hard road, apparently humble road, was itself a proud road. And oh, how careful we should be of that. This is in here in our Bibles to confront us with what is in our own hearts. And not necessarily, merely a Pharisee 2,000 years ago. Jesus told this disciple to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others. And this always goes together. You trust in yourself that you're righteous and treated others with contempt. And it's no surprise that only a chapter later in a different parable we'll read, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man, referring to one who stood in the place of God. For it is this Go the extra mile and be extra pure vision that grows out of a restrictive God that believes God to be severe. And so we had better be extra careful to please, or shall I say, appease him. These regulations, they look appealing because they look smart. They, they look religious and they feel religious. They look, they look humble. Sam Storms has said asceticism is the belief that if you add up enough physical negatives, you get a spiritual positive. You ever think that? <laughs> um, yeah, enough spiritual physical negatives can kind of feel like you deserve a spiritual positive with God. Not so. And related, they're appealing because they feel hard. They're severe to the body. They sound promising. They hold out the promise of, of holding back sin. They hold out the promise of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But Paul says, it doesn't do any of that. And Jesus, in preaching against the Pharisees, condemns them for the sin in their own heart, which they're overlooking because they feel safe for their outward obedience. Got to get this right. They're also appealing, no doubt, because they're so specific. Don't touch this, taste that, and we love specificity when it comes to commands. I mean, we want to be told exactly what to do so we can line right up down the middle of that. 
Let's consider some examples of the kind of things on which we regularly find Christians with different approaches to. Some have more and less scripture to inform them. They're not all the same kind, but they're all the same kinds of things for which we wish the Bible just told us specifically what to do and what you usually want your spiritual leaders to tell you very specifically what to do. And I won't. I get this list from Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley's book, Conscience, endorsed by our own Dan Brooks. Dropping names so you don't shoot just me. Okay, so. Uh, I put that in there. I'm just going to tell them why I'm doing it. All right. Watching mixed martial arts for entertainment. Give me an answer. How to treat Sundays, whether to work or not. Or watch a sport or not. Listening to secular music. What dressing modestly is. Capitalism versus socialism. Fair trade coffee, global warming, watching particular movies or TV shows, playing video games, reading the Harry Potter series, ladies wearing makeup, and how much. Following the schedule and growing kids God's way. Homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics. Public school versus private school versus private Christian school versus homeschool. Eating fast food that is unhealthy. A church with multiple services or multiple sites. Christian hip-hop. Body piercings. Smoking cigars. Drinking alcohol in moderation. Going into debt. Dating versus courtship. When married couples should start trying to have children. How many children married couples should have. Practicing daily family devotions. Being overweight. Perpetuating the Santa Claus myth and Halloween. We all want our pastor to be Moses for us and adjudicate the specifics of right and wrong to tell us to do this and to tell us not to do that. And often enough, I will try to show you what I think Scripture says and how it comes to bear on a particular question. But pastors, elders aren't little Moseses. My job isn't to give you the exact recipe for every single decision you might, you might make. It's to help with, by God's grace and with his word and his spirit's help to make you a chef so that you understand God and you know his word. You know yourself. You know the world you live in. And you know Jesus Christ to whom you are joined. And you make a wise decision. And sometimes there's a spectrum of God glorifying decisions within that range to make. And whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God spiritual chefs. And finally, these regulations are appealing because they're everywhere. He calls them human precepts in verse 22. I mean, it's a, it's a really common way to solve human problems to regulate human behavior. These kinds of rules are all over and we've always had them. So what's the problem? What's the problem with them? They look so good does seem a little anticlimactic. Paul does seem a little too unmerciful with the rule makers, but isn't he overreacting a little and maybe a lot? Don't let them take you captive, he, he says. Don't let them deceive you with empty philosophy and deceit. Ow, that's strong for somebody trying to be holy and trying to make someone else be holy. Could extra rules and such really qualify for this kind of strength of warning? Now to our third question. We've examined these regulations and why they're appealing. Now, the question, how can they be wrong? I mean, how can they be wrong? How can something so seemingly wise be wrong? Something so 
religious in its frame, so humble, so hard, so promising, so refreshingly specific, and so commonly practiced. Paul is unmerciful with these rule makers, and he gives us reasons. Listen for some of them. I'll read the passage again, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping, stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There is a crucial primary one here that I will save for last. But let's drill, drill through a few of these together. First, they're irrelevant. They're irrelevant. That's what I take by verse 21. Don't taste, handle, taste, or touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. He means literally things that go into your body and turn into waste. Mildly more vulgar, vulgarly, but vulgarly, but more close to the text. Things that end up in the toilet. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. It's sexual immorality and deceit and lust in the, the heart, Jesus says. And the New Testament is surprisingly and shockingly not very specific, not like we like it to be. We're told to live on bread alone. Not on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But we want to know when when to read the Bible and for exactly how long. And then once we've pinned that down, we want others to keep the same schedule. There's a friend I had in college um, asked me about my prayer life. Well, it could have been better. And, oh man, he had a prescription and he pounded me and hounded me for this, with this prescription. A certain amount of time, a certain time of day, very prescriptive and uh, in spirit, condescending, demotivating. We're to flee sexual immorality and to keep the marriage bed pure, but we want to know how many months a person should be engaged or whether to call it dating or courtship and the exact form that should take. Well, how have they made such a big deal out of inconsequential things? They've made an absolute matter out of an irrelevant matter of food in this case. They get specific where they should not. But it's also possible to make an absolute matter out of something that isn't that clear or important to get forceful about something that shouldn't be forced. So in this case, we have an example of something that is irrelevant that they're making a requirement. But if that's an extreme example, you have other things that are not as important that can be made elevated to a degree of importance that is unscriptural. And for this, I want to offer you a tool for helping think about these things, which I could have offered at any point in this mini-series through this paragraph, but falls nicely right, right here. And it's what we might call theological triage. Al Mohler has coined this for us, and it's awfully helpful. Um... Think of a hospital room. If you go into the emergency room at a hospital, you may have a cold, you may have a severed arm, you may have a severed head. And a nurse is going to have to do triage to determine the priority that you're going to get. 
And hopefully a severed head will be ahead of you if you have a cold. You probably shouldn't be in the ER if you have a cold. Maybe you've overestimated your sickness. One time I waited way too long to take Chrissy to the ER when she was vomiting from food poisoning. We all don't know when we should show up. But when you get there, they're going to discern what your problem is, and they're going to put you in order. Theological triage. Well, there's a kind of theological triage that needs to be done. An approach to weighing matters that allows us to say with Paul that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for example, is of first importance. And for us to discern on one another's lips and in the spirit of the place that it is always of first importance to us and not assumed while something else takes its place. So when we think about theological triage, think of three orders of importance for a particular doctrine or or practice, perhaps. There's the first level beliefs that make a Christian a true Christian and that make a church a true church. These are what we might call our confessions. These are beliefs like the full deity and humanity of Jesus or the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Beliefs central to the saving truth of the gospel. If you lose them, you lose the gospel and you don't have an actual church, no matter what it has on its steeple. Well, the second level of belief are those beliefs that a church may hold differently than another faithful church. These are what we might call our convictions as Christians. Matters that are either less clear or of lesser theological consequence than those first order beliefs. Some examples may include the need for a plurality of elders or one's view of baptism or certain spiritual gifts. There's different ways to handle those and you can have a true church and a true Christian. Although you may have different churches that believe different things here. Uniformity of conviction on these matters may not be required at a given church like ours. But in its teaching ministry and shape, a church will generally reflect a coherent answer to those questions. So that's first order beliefs and then second order beliefs and now third order beliefs. The kinds of things that are regularly different from Christian to Christian, even in the same church. And for lack of a better word, we may call these preferences. And examples might include differences in approach to schooling or the music we listen to or specific views in the end times. We may feel more or less strongly about these matters, but we seek deference on these matters and do so as a way of protecting the primacy of the most important things that unite us. We recognize these three levels of belief as a helpful way of protecting the most important things and the unity of the church. There's two ditches it protects us from. The ditch of theological liberalism that takes black and white issues in the first category and makes them gray, treating them as third-level matters of importance. Or on the other end of the spectrum, legalism, taking matters of third-level importance and treating them as black and white first-level beliefs. So theological liberalism wants to take what's in the first bucket and put it in the third. It's not that important. And legalism wants to take what's in the third bucket and put it in the first, to add strength to it. But in doing so, it takes away strength from the most important things we believe together. That's called theological triage. And it's a helpful way to make sure we don't strongly insist on and enforce basically and relative to the primary things irrelevant requirements on one another. So ask yourself a question. Are your passions about this or that rule or regulation or conviction commensurate with its clarity or its theological consequence in Scripture. 
Is God as passionate about that as you are? Is it a first-order belief where if you lose it, you lose the gospel? Or is it a second-order belief, a reasonable reason to unify with other believers in a local congregation? Or is it a a matter of third-order conviction? You may believe strongly about it and make a good, strong argument for it, and that's fair. But you sure can hug a brother or sister in the church, and you wouldn't want anyone to feel judged or condemned or called out like an umpire by you on account of being different on that issue. And brothers and sisters, we have to be very self-conscious about the proportion of our passions and the strength of our words when it comes to these things. Because if we're on autopilot, we're all likely to be all over the place on a whole lot of things. So it takes a measure of maturity and self-control to get that right. Lest we take something that's of lesser importance or maybe even irrelevance and hold it over a brother or sister as a regulation from God. So what's, why are they wrong? Well, they're irrelevant. And in this case, not tasting, not touching, not handling, some of these things, he says, end up in the toilet when it's over. They're not to be held over each other. Well, second, these regulations are arrogant. They're arrogant. They're human solutions. He says they're human teachings, self-made religion. And this is what humans have always done. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. In the first two verses of Genesis 3, I want you to listen to, where you can see this self-made religion even three chapters into Scripture, where the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field the Lord God had made. And what did he say to the woman? He said, did not God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see what happened here was the serpent, in a very crafty manner, set her mind to the restriction that God had placed, and not on his bountiful and exceeding generosity. He came to her with a narrow and restrictive view of her creator, and she actually adopted that. And she added to God's command, his command, which was to eat of any tree in the garden save one. And she focused on that one little command, and then she added to it, not even to touch it, lest you die. She imagined God to be more restrictive than he was. She downplayed in her heart the generosity of God in giving her the garden. And that move right there was almost like a, I don't know which martial art I should be quoting. It's a move to take her down. And he took humanity down. A sweep to the leg, a surprise by leading us to imagine God is more restrictive than he is. We imagine God like us, litigious instead of generous. He's the father who welcomes home his prodigal son, rather. Jesus dealt with this very thing with the Pharisees. Third, these regulations are worldly, and that's an unexpected one, but he says that they're according to the elemental spirits of the world. The elemental spirits of the world, it's the way of fixing the human problem in a human way. But behind that lies the serpent, the god of this world. And ironically, as we've said it, it's actually our strongest efforts to not be world that can be at times more worldly than the world because we've adopted their way of thinking about human change. Listen to what Paul says in 
1 Timothy 4.4. What a surprising warning you'll hear here. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What is the teaching? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What do they do? Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created. Here's the note of generosity, you see. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, everything, key word, created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So we see a theme developing from a few corners of Scripture that we ought to be eagerly and carefully on guard for restrictions that God is not required, lest we downplay his generosity and not enjoy his bountiful gifts to us. So they're worldly. These regulations are also useless. He says they don't even work. They don't actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. That's why we could also call them deceptive. What is more, not only do they not stop that which they prohibit, they can even provoke the indulgence in it. And they cannot make, even if you live by these prohibitions, these prohibitions in a generally prohibitive view of Christianity that says don't, 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 can't make you love your wife like Christ loved the church. Maybe it can keep you out of bed with a woman who isn't your wife. But it can't get you anywhere close to what God has for you through Jesus. Which leads to our last one and our big one here. These regulations diminish or even deny the sufficiency of Jesus and all that he is for us. Verse 20, you can't have missed it. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What he's saying is, You've got a different operating system. Uh, the cassette doesn't go in the CD drive. You're a totally different kind of person. What God has done for you and me, my friends, and Jesus is absolutely, unfathomably, unhumanly incredible. And he didn't just die for you and me. We died with him is what he's saying. You're new. He wasn't just raised for you and me. We were raised with him. New creations created in Christ Jesus. And you're a completely new kind of human being. A new humanity, he calls us. Reconciled to God, which is possible because all your sins have been nailed to the cross. And you don't stand before God with any guilt. And that changes things. And you've undergone spiritual surgery. He calls it the circumcision of the flesh, the heart, so that you have a new heart that's alive to God. And the fullness of Jesus' deity, the fullness of deity which dwells in Jesus, you are filled with him, Paul has said only verses earlier. You are filled with him. To say that you need regulations of this sort is to treat you like you don't know Christ. It's to treat knowing Christ as secondary to the better fix of a leash. But you are Christ's sheep. And as Christ's sheep, you hear the voice of your shepherd and you obey. 
Think of our relationship with a, an earthly dad. I pray your relationship with your earthly dad is good. It's not contractual. It's not technical. It may entail in that relationship like discipline and trouble, and even that's a part of a relationship with God, but it's a familial relationship. A hug is not mandated as a function of obligation, but it is natural, and so obedience to a father is natural when the relationship is right and when it's characterized by trust. Regulations are impersonal, and an overly regulated Christian life ends up an awfully impersonal, unfeeling, condescending Christian life. But our relationship that Jesus has purchased for us with him and with our Father is a deeply familial relationship. Beloved children of a generous, loving Father. And therein, through union with Jesus and a relationship with this God, is all the power that you need to stop the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, these regulations directly contradict the deepest and most important truth about us. And I pray you have not been tempted by this or lured by this or even lured a long time ago and thwarting this on other people. The kind of life that denies at the heart the most beautiful and important and soaring and expensive things about your brothers and sisters. That you are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection and you're a new creation. The indulgence of the flesh is stopped by a greater indulgence in the person of Jesus Christ. Sin lasts a moment. It is fleeting. And we will only be able to risk it, resist it when we see that Jesus Christ himself is satisfying and forever. So friends, remember that if you are in Christ, you are united to Christ. And if you're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection then don't you, my friends, be enslaved by these regulations. Why do you submit, he says, or better, why would you? We don't have reason to think they were entrenched in this, but only threatened in it by it. So, I plead with you, if you are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, don't you be spiritually destabilized by these regulations. He said earlier in chapter 2 that he rejoices over the firmness of their faith. And these regulations threaten to unseat and to destabilize these Christians in this church. And if you're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, don't you embrace the spiritual poverty of such low expectations? If I could put it this way, the kind of regulations spoken of in our passage reflect a very low view of God's holiness, a famished view of purity, profoundly low expectations for the kind of life change the gospel brings. Even if I could say it insultingly low, and I say insultingly with good grounds because Paul writes with such condescension himself, parodying those who offer regulations. And if you're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, don't think for a moment, my dear friends, that God is not lavish in his generosity. If so much of your spiritual, mental, and emotional bandwidth is tied up in what not to do, it may be that you've got this off. We were talking about this as a family yesterday in the car on the way back from Sidewall Pizza where all decent and deep spiritual conversations happen. It's the primer. That's a regulation for you. Consider Eden. What did God tell us to do in Eden? Do not, do not, do not. 
In my son's words, he had a lot of do's for us in Eden. He had a lot of do's. He said, be fruitful and multiply. He said, have dominion over everything in the air and everything in the sea. And eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree in the garden. Dominion over the whole earth. The picture in Genesis is that of a lavishly generous, giving, benevolent, stupendously happy and giving God. But one tree. Don't eat of that tree. Just trust me. Look at all that I've given you. Look at how much I love you. Look at how good that I've made everything that I have created and given to you for your enjoyment and our enjoyment and your enjoyment in me. Don't eat of the tree. Just trust me. And I know you can because of all that I've given to you. When I ask you, what did God tell us to do in the garden? And if your answer was, well, he told us not to eat of the tree, may I suggest that it's possible I don't know how strong this would be, but your calibration is off here on God's generosity. If Genesis 1 through 2 represents in your imagination and your relationship with God mainly a prohibition, something that shouldn't be done, then I, I plead with you to imagine God in those chapters as lavish generosity, as full of lavish generosity as he is. And that there is the key to trusting the commands that he does give and not needing extra fences and prohibitions to keep us away from what's prohibited. Imagining God to be a kind of cosmic regulator, we think he's happy for us to add hedges around his commands when in fact he gave us all things, every tree, and he has not restricted them for our enjoyment. Brothers and sisters, we have a gracious God who has loved us even when we were his enemies, who sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners. Don't doubt him. Don't doubt him. Work as hard as you can to please him because you know how much he loves you and you know how much he can be trusted. And be very, very careful. Be self-suspicious, maybe more self-suspicious than you've ever been about your propensity to imagine him as restrictive instead of generous and to hold over that restrictive vision of God over your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this this paragraph which we have carefully worked through and meditated on. It would be easy for us to pass over it quickly, and yet we recognize that all that Paul has written so far in Colossians actually leads to this kind of warning, that he has preached to us and proclaimed Christ to us, taught us of Christ in order to warn us of threats to the fullness that is ours in him. We give you thanks that all of our sins are nailed to the cross where Jesus died. We give you thanks that he not only died for us, but Father, we have died with him. And he is not only raised for us, but we are raised with him. New creations This very church, this very assembly, a colony of the new creation itself. May we look like it, may we rejoice like it, and may we overflow with abundant thanksgiving like all of that is true and from your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.